Thanks for checking out this week's message. I hope that it's helpful for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Here at Restore, we are a place where anyone can have a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So I hope you walk away from this message knowing that you are deeply loved by God and that you can be fully loved by a church community. And if you don't have that, we would love to connect with you here at Restore. You can go to restoreaustin.org to find out more. Good morning, everybody. My name is Lindsay, if we have not met. I am the executive pastor here at Restore. I've been in this position for just over a year, but I have been attending Restore for the last six years, and I am just continually so grateful for the whole community here, how much love I have felt in my own life being part of this community, and it's always such a privilege to be able to share with you. Prior to attending Restore, I had attended a large, prominent church here in Austin for eight years. That church and Restore are different in a lot of ways, but one of the ways that they're different is that they are a membership-based church, whereas Restore is not. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, a membership-based church, they typically have the structure where you don't have to become an official member to attend the church, but by becoming an official member, you are showing that you are committed to the church. You are typically expected to participate in the church by leading small groups, by volunteering, by taking classes they offer. You might also get to vote on the budget or approving large initiatives, such as purchasing a building. Usually to become a member in these kinds of churches, you might be required to attend several weeks of classes where you learn about the beliefs, the practices of the church. You might have a one-on-one meeting with someone from church leadership so that they can assess your character. And then ultimately, you assign an agreement of your role as a member. Like I said, I attended this church for eight years. And during that time, I never became a member for a couple of reasons. But the main reason I never became a member was because I knew that one of the bullet points that I would have to agree to would be to donate at least 10% of my income. And not only that, I would have to agree that this church would be the primary recipient of that donation. So I couldn't say, all right, I think I can give 10% of my income, but I'd like to give some to the church, some to this other charity that I care about. Since neither my husband and I were making very much money at the time, and I wanted to be able to give money to other causes, I didn't feel like I could assign that agreement when we first started attending the church. But even with time, I never felt like I could give a full 10% due to paying off student loans, paying for hospital bills after having kids, paying for daycare for multiple kids. Anybody ever felt that? Uh, I just never signed the agreement to become a member. But while we were never officially members, during those eight years, we were active participants in this community. We donated some of the money that we did have. We attended church almost every Sunday. We were active participants in a weekly small group. We had two babies during our time there, so we were active in kids' ministry. I even took a Bible class they offered. One day, eight years into attending and participating in this church, an article from a national Christian media outlet popped into my newsfeed. And this article described that a staff member at the church I was attending was placed on administrative leave and was under investigation for his role in covering up a sexual assault of a minor at a previous church. I immediately went to the church's website to see what they were saying about this. You wanna guess what I found? (laughs) Nothing, nothing, nothing on their website, nothing on their social media, nothing in my inbox, in my personal email. 
So I texted a few friends to see if they had heard anything. And I was told that they did send an email addressing this issue, but it was only sent to their members, not to everyone who was participating in this community. So I sent an email to my pastor and I asked him why. Why was I learning about this from a national media outlet and not from the church directly? I emphasized that I have been attending for eight years. I had two daughters in their kids' ministry. And I worked in the field of child abuse and sexual assault, and their silence on this issue was concerning. The pastor did email me back that day, and this one line has stuck with me all these years later. He said, we disclose this to our members because that is who we as leaders in this church are primarily responsible for and accountable to. My takeaway was that my involvement in and commitment to this church meant nothing to them. That I had no value to them, that I didn't deserve to hear this news, that they didn't feel responsible for me as part of their community because I did not feel able to or comfortable committing to giving them 10% of my income. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like your value in a Christian community was tied to how much money you gave? Maybe you haven't felt that way exactly, but I think that most of us can agree that talking about donating or tithing to the church can make us feel uncomfortable. Of course it makes us feel uncomfortable. There are so much mixed and harmful messaging put out by the Christian community on what giving to the church should look like. There is messaging that says, how much you give is a sign of the amount of faith in God. For example, and these are all real quotes that I found. For example, maybe you've been told things like, quote, how much you give is a reflection of how we view God. Or when we are not generous towards God, we have forgotten how much he has blessed us. Or you've seen videos of televangelists guilting people into giving by saying things like, quote, I don't care if you ain't got nothing but two nickels, you better give God that first one. There is also messaging out there that creates some sort of equation blessing, right? Like the more money you give equals the more blessings you will receive. You don't have to search the internet for long before you find video after video of pastors promising prosperity, saying things like, quote, I started giving on the money I wanted to make. And then God had to open up the windows of heaven and pull me out a blessing because he wasn't going to be in debt to me. That's how that works. <laughs> or there's videos of pastors saying that, well, I need to purchase my third private jet and justifying it by saying, well, quote, if Jesus were alive now, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be flying in an airplane. And I mean, sure, airplanes are a more efficient way to travel, but I don't know if a pastor should own three of them. Is this what giving to God's kingdom looks like? So what is the truth? How do we know what true and healthy giving looks like? But more importantly, if we're in a place where we have nothing we can financially offer, does our value in our church community differ from those who are able to give? Here at Restore, we're in the middle of a year-long series called A Year of Bible Stories for Grownups. And during this time, we're taking a look at Bible stories or themes that have been taught in ways that have caused harm. We're looking at these texts to see how they can be understood in their original context and in a way that produces Christ-likeness and flourishing for everyone. 
This morning, we're going to look at a couple of texts from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is placed in the New Testament immediately after the Gospels. It picks up after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it chronicles the events of the early Christian church. We'll be starting with a passage that describes the giving culture in this early Christian community. In Acts 4, Luke, the author, describes how this early Christian community operated. He says, the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had, and that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I know that this text can bring up conflicting feelings for a lot of us. On the one hand, I mean, I feel like this sounds like an ideal situation, right? We talk all the time about the importance of having a healthy community, that we aren't designed to live this life on our own, and we all need some kind of support system to lean on when times get tough. This community was known for being generous, for making sure that nobody went without, that everyone's basic needs were met. On the one hand, that sounds great. But on the other hand, this text can be scary for many of us. I know it is for me. We stop and think, well, what does this mean for me today, practically? Does this mean that I need to sell my house? I need to give the proceeds to the church? Do I need to empty my bank account to show my faith and give it to the church and just trust that I will be taken care of when I need help? I know that this is true because we have heard some of your stories. We know that many of you have been taught that that you need to sell everything you have and give it to the church and faith. I know what I've wondered where the line is drawn. Is it sinful for me to buy a house? Or is it only sinful if I spend over a certain amount of it? Where is that line? Am I being selfish because I don't give 10% of my income to the church, but I chose to take my family on a beach trip? Should I have given that money to those in need instead? It's stories like these that emphasize for me the importance of having a good study Bible. A study Bible includes all kinds of footnotes and cultural context, which can be incredibly helpful when trying to understand the English translation of an event that happened 2,000 years ago at a completely separate culture. If you don't have one, I recommend the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. Shout out to Zach for recommending it to me. Let me know if you would like one and you can't afford it and we would be happy to help you purchase one. So in the study Bible, it tells us that, quote, ancient writers report that the Jewish sect of the Essenes lived without private property, sharing everything in common. Likewise, some Greek idealist sects, such as the Pythagoreans, rejected private property. By contrast, the early Christians sold property whenever anyone had need. They valued people more than property without rejecting private property altogether. They did not go as far as the Essenes or the Pythagoreans, but they went much farther than the vast majority of ancient society. Another helpful footnote pointed out that this kind of giving was voluntary for early Christians, and it had to be genuine. This means that if anybody tells you that you have to sell all of your possessions and give that money to the church, that isn't actually reflective of what was going on in the early Christian community. And this means if you are coerced or guilted into giving money to the church, that also is not an accurate reflection of the early Christian community. Any gift you give should be voluntary and genuine. 
These early Christians still owned personal possessions, but they were far more generous than most of the people around them because they valued people more than property. So then what does true generosity look like in scripture and in the early church? We're gonna look at Acts chapter nine for one of my new favorite stories. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Now, in any time in culture, experiencing the loss of your spouse is painful and it can cause financial burden. But especially in this time and culture where the story takes place, becoming a widow was a catastrophic event, usually resulting in deep and inescapable poverty. Because of the societal reality, Jewish culture emphasized caring for widows. They didn't just care for them because it felt like the right thing to do. Caring for them was stepping into the deep love and care that God has for the marginalized. Deuteronomy 10.18 says of God, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 68.4-5 says, rejoice before him, his name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And Jesus expands on this in Matthew 25. He says, then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. To care for the most vulnerable in our society is to act in the love of God. And because we were all made in the image of God, to care for each other is to honor God himself. In this story about Tabitha, we can make an educated guess that she was wealthy because Joppa was a wealthy town and because the text says she was always helping the poor, so she likely had the means to be always helping. But while we can assume that Tabitha spent a lot of her monetary resources on the clothing she made, it is clear that the most important part of her gift was her love for the widows receiving those gifts. We can know that Tabitha loved the widows because of how they reacted to her death. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Tabitha had made while she was still with them. Sure, Tabitha used her resources for the fabric. Yes, she gave her time to make these garments. But I imagine what meant the most to these widows was their interactions with Tabitha, how she loved them. Before she made the garments, did she spend time with these women first? Did she sit with them and listen to them and cry with them? 
when she was making these garments, did she think about them and pray for them with every stitch? When she delivered the garments, did she spend her whole morning with them so that they wouldn't have to be alone? When they tried on the garments, did she sincerely tell them how beautiful they looked in them? Tabitha wasn't expecting anything in return for her gifts. That wasn't the point of her giving. What inspired Tabitha to give was the love she had for the widows, and it is the part of the gift that matters the most. We know that this is the part that matters the most because we all know that sometimes in life, we get to be Tabitha, right? We get to be the ones who blesses others with a gift. But other times in life, we are the widows. We are the ones that need to be cared for. And this story shows us that the widows are lifted up in a significant way. Do you know, Tabitha is only one of two people who are raised from the dead in the New Testament by someone other than Jesus. This is an important display of God's power, and it is an important display of where the widows stand with God. The story says, turning toward the dead woman, Peter said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Who was called to be the first witnesses of this miracle? The widows, the ones who were being cared for, were especially called to witness this miracle right alongside the rest of the community of believers. They had just as much value and just as much right to experience the love and power of God as the rest of their community. When we think about how we should be giving, we should always have the love of the other person at the heart of our gift. Because when we think back on our own lives and times that we have needed help from other people, yes, the physical gift is nice, but it is knowing that we are loved that is so much better. Recently, I posted what was supposed to be a funny story on my Instagram about how I had spent a week caring for my sick kids, my sick husband, and so I thought, you know what, this is the perfect time to claim that free pizza that I have pending in my Domino's app. And uh, what happened was when I tried ordering it, I ordered the pizza and then it told me, oh, you need to add more items to qualify for delivery. And I thought, well, I'm not loading them all up in the car, so sure, I'll add wings to my order. And then I had to pay the delivery fee, and then I tipped the driver. So I ended up spending $25 on this free pizza. (laughs) So after posting this story, I received a notification that one of my friends from my restore group Venmoed me $25. And the message had a pizza emoji, and it said, I've got you tonight. And I immediately started crying. (laughs) Yes, covering the cost of the pizza was financially helpful. But on a day when I was feeling completely emotionally and physically drained from caring for sick people, it was her sweet message. And knowing that I was seen and understood and cared for, that meant the most. We all have stories like this. Maybe someone brought you a meal when you were sick or after having a baby. Maybe someone gave you a gift card so you can treat yourself to a coffee. These gifts mean a lot to us, but so do the free gifts we receive. Maybe you were struggling with a depression and a friend sent you a text message checking in on you. Maybe a coworker left you a funny note when you were having a particularly stressful week. 
All of us want to know and need to know that we are seen and loved by others. So what is the truth? What does scripture tell us about giving? Scripture shows us that we aren't called to give everything we have to our detriment. We aren't called to give out of fear or obligation or as a way to prove how holy or faithful we are. We aren't called to give as a way to be blessed with financial prosperity. We aren't called to give as a sign of our commitment to and value in our church. Scripture shows us that God has the deepest love for all of us, regardless of what we can financially offer. Sometimes we are called to receive this kind of love from others. We can sometimes feel embarrassed or unwilling to ask for help or receive this kind of love, but I'm telling you that in a healthy Christian community, there should be no shame, no guilt in accepting this love and help. And sometimes we are called to be like Tabitha and to give and to share out of our abundance due to the love that we have for others. We can't just see someone suffering and only pray for them if we have the means to help. We are serving Jesus by serving each other. And yes, one way we can show our love for others is by giving some of what we have to organizations who are supporting people in need. And yes, that can include our church community. Here at Restore, your donations support, one, these weekly gatherings so that everyone, regardless of their age, race, gender, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic status can come to experience the extravagant love of God. Your donations also allow us to donate regularly to 12 nonprofits and to care for folks within Restore who are going through a tough time. In the last six months, Restore has given away more than $20,000 to our community partners and folks in need through our benevolence program. These dollars help fund operating expenses for these agencies that support and care for the hungry, for those experiencing homelessness, for those healing from trauma, for refugees, for the middle schoolers and teachers at the school, and for those who have been told that they don't belong at God's table. Just in the last six months, the money you have donated to Restore has purchased thousands of dollars worth of school supplies, toiletries, Thanksgiving meals, home goods, clothing, and groceries for people in need in our community. Thank you for giving so that others can experience this love of God. Let us all remember that there are other ways we can love and care for each other without money. We can volunteer our time with one of Restore's community partners, such as sorting food, or babysitting kids in foster care, or mentoring women who are rebuilding their lives after trauma. Or if we are stretched with our time and can't volunteer with, our, with an agency, we can reach out to somebody we know who is going through a hard time. We can sit with them, we can encourage them. All of us have ways that we can show our love for one another. And I encourage you this week to think about what giving out of love could look like for you. And importantly, if you are someone who is in need right now, please reach out to us. We wanna be a community that supports you in the ways that we can. If you don't remember anything else from this message, I want you to leave here knowing that at Restore, we do not believe that your value in or commitment to this community is based on how much money you donate. You have inherent worth because you were made in the image of God. And we are genuinely so glad you're here. Let me pray for us.
Dear God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your truth that you have shown us in scripture. That our value, our worth is not dependent on the money that we have, on what we give. Our value is based on the love that you have for us because you made us in your image. And that's something that can't ever be taken away. Please be with us this week as we think about how we can love others well and how we can allow ourselves to be loved well. These things I pray in your name. Amen.